Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Jackie DeMonte is one of the brightest rising stars investing in the Chicago and Midwest ecosystem. Her interests and passions are as varied as they are fascinating, which is what made this conversation so much fun. She's a VC by day, an engineer by training, and a painter and blogger on the side. Jackie went to U of I for undergrad and studied engineering. While at U of I, she was a Dean's List student, captain of the cheer team, and concentrated her studies on robotics. She started her career at Accenture as a management consultant in the company's enterprise business and technology consulting practice. She then left Accenture for an opportunity to work for an IoT startup, Silver Spring Networks. She worked at Silver Spring while getting her MBA from Chicago Booth. Jackie entered venture capital at Hyde Park Venture Partners and is now a partner at Chicago Ventures. Jackie's one of the brightest minds we have in the Chicago VC community, and she documents her thoughts on her blog Day by Jay, which is listed in the show notes. I had such a blast chatting with Jackie, and I hope you all enjoy. Jackie, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time and joining us on Chicago Capital. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. First off, uh, my sincerest apologies about the heartbreaking early tournament exit that U of I <laughs> just had to get that out of the way. I know it's still fresh, but you know, I, I just feel like I, something had to be said. Yeah, I mean... U of I sports are like a constant disappointment. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they're like the Cubs, like you love them and you want them to do well, but sometimes they just don't. So and they sad. They give you moments of glory, like every 15 years, I feel like. Exactly. And it, I mean, it's across all sports. Well, there are actually a lot of U of I sports that do really, really well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the sort of NCAA tournament and... Uh, bowl game appearances have been lacking. You guys seem poised for success, though. I think Brad Underwood seems like a really good coach. Did you grow up in the Chicagoland area, like a fan of those 2005 legendary teams that everybody still talks about today? Or um, I guess, did you grow up sort of a fan of U of I? You know, I did not. Uh, we So it's funny, my whole family outside of my mom, who went to ISU, um, all went to U of I. No one was a U of I fan until I think I started uh, cheering there. So we we grew up sort of not aware of what was going on. And then I showed up and my parents started, you know, coming to games because I was cheering. And then one of my sisters did track and field and then another one of my sisters cheered. And so that got us all involved in, in U of I. And there was a while where I was, you know, reading the message boards and knew the coaches' names and things like that. And then, you know, my sister, my youngest sister graduated and I stopped uh, stopped paying attention because it didn't directly uh, relate to me. Um, but no, it's, I mean, it's it's fun. It's fun when they come back and, you know, I love the pride around around this city as well. Just in, in general, Big Ten sports are a fun thing to um, be involved with. Yeah, everybody seems to love Big Ten sports here. And then, you know, Notre Dame is just universally hated or loved. There's no in between. (laughs) Like you can be a, you can be a casual fan of U of I and a casual fan of Michigan, but there's just no casual fans of Notre Dame. I found it's, it's, it's fun to be around. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the um, CrossFit joke. 
you know, someone went to Notre Dame when they tell you or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm not the, um, I don't have comedic timing, but I feel like that applies, right? It's so tough because I, I just had Kristen Pacifico on the show and that, that episode just published today and she's great, but I realized like within two, like two seconds of starting the podcast, I was like, Kristen, congratulations. You're my first Notre Dame guest on the podcast. And I was like, God, I just fell right into the stereotype right there. <laughs> yeah. What That's am awesome. I doing? Um, but I guess we should kick this off, you know, as we discussed, you, you did your undergrad at U of I, um, and then you went to work at Accenture. I'd love to hear just some of the highlights of your career. You know, what led you into venture capital? Yeah, it's a long, long story that has very little to do with venture capital up until essentially the the transition. Um, so moving, you know, moving quickly from U of I, I studied engineering I uh, got some offers in engineering that were just not interesting to me at the time. And that's how I ended up at Accenture because, you know, the thought was, I don't know what I want to do. I can do a lot of different things and figure out which, uh, which one I want to do at the same time. And then hopefully, you know, it's a decent salary and I can, I can make some money while doing it. So that was the thesis behind Accenture. Um, I certainly learned what I did and did not want to do. And part of that was, what I had been doing for the, you know, the last three years. And so I decided to uh, go to Booth and I went, I went part-time because I went fairly young in my career and felt like the opportunity cost was a little bit too great to just up and up and leave my working life. During that time, I joined a company called Silver Spring Networks, which was actually a great, a great time to be in the IoT space. We created uh, essentially hardware and software for Internet of Things as applied to utilities. And, and my job was kind of bringing our technology into the smart city space. That was wonderful exposure to more of the operational side of technology, developing products, building relationships, selling with customers, all, all of that sort of experience rolled up into one. And really set me up for a role in, in venture capital. I mean, at that time, I still didn't know what it was. It, it took me probably a year into Booth where I had some friends uh, that were putting together a team for VCIC, which is the you know venture capital competition. It's kind of a reverse business plan competition. And they needed someone with tech experience because they all had various types of finance experience. And I was like, oh, cool. What is this thing? And I spent all of I think Christmas break, the, the competition starts in, in January at Booth, um, just like reading venture deals and all these blog posts and, and got really interested in, in the topic. Um, so that's, that's how I got exposure to venture capital um, is actually VCIC, where I met a lot of the folks around the Chicago ecosystem um, and started building relationships with a few few firms. And that's, I mean, that's how I got connected and ended up at, at Hyde Park. So that was my first, you know, first foray into the, um, into the industry. When you were at Silver Spring Networks, did you spend any time in Silicon Valley? Were you commuting to, to the Bay area? And if so, you know, what was that, what was that experience like? How did you find the Valley? How did you, you know, compare it to Chicago? Yeah. So our headquarters were in Redwood city, I flew out there um, to meet with largely our, our product engineering and some of our partnership teams. Um, so my role was managing some of the pilot and sort of proof of concept projects with our customers that were moving into more city applications. Um, so this could be uh, streetlights or EV charging. I um, mean, at the same time, I was working with other companies that were developing those end products. We didn't make any of the products ourselves. We just made the chips that went into uh, the products to make them intelligent. Uh, and so I would work with folks at headquarters to 
you know, develop our water metering infrastructure as an example. And so being in person and being able to just go to someone's desk and tap them and be like, hey, what, what is going on? Or, you know, to see the products as they're being integrated and feel them and learn, you know, what different elements were. That was all really important. The thing I remember most about Silicon Valley was just the traffic getting to and from my hotel. I mean, it was a pain in the butt. Um, but no, I mean, it was it was great. We had a big, um, I, I call it a, a campus, but there were, you know, three buildings. Um, we were renting from Stanford. So it was right on Stanford's, uh, you know, kind of um, not, not the campus itself, but right near there. And it was just cool. There was there was hardware and different equipment, you know, all around. And you could just wander and see what people were working on. And and that was that was really fun. It was fun to get involved in where where things were being made. In Chicago, we were doing much more of the let's test things and deploy things and sell. We had a um we had an office in in the um, Sears Tower, I guess it's Willis Tower now, where we had a lot of displays and you know we could we could show customers things as they came through. Uh, came through the city. But no, it was, I mean, it was fun. It was just a lot of really interesting things. And I think set me up well for venture because we were always thinking about, you know, what, what could be and who would be interested and, and, you know, how we could actually get things um, out in the field. And I think it was really fun, especially being part of the sort of core technology. And I could kind of talk to whoever I wanted to, who was developing either software, you know, like on the analytics side or insight side, or, you know, kind of the, the next gen of, of hardware applications, you know, whether it was different, different sensor networks or, or whatever else. Did you have any designs on maybe making a jump to the Valley for VC? Because, you know, throughout your time at Booth, I know you, you decided you wanted to make the transition to VC, but did you ever have thoughts about, about that, that move? Not specifically, interestingly enough. I... I think my career in VC started before I had planned for it. So I I was midway through my career at Booth um, when I actually got my first job in, in venture capital. Um, so the plan for me was, you know, work at Silver Spring, finish Booth. Everyone does their recruiting sort of towards the end of their end of their classes. That, that, that was my goal, like make the transition when I graduate. And instead I made the transition, you know, two years before. I graduated and it was one of these things where one VC jobs are hard to come by. And that's like drilled into your head when you're, when you're at um, business school. So I was like, okay, one's on the table. If this is the move, got to take it. And then add on top, you know, I spent a lot of time getting to know the folks at, at Hyde Park. Guy and Iris specifically have great brands associated with the school. And so it was a very good fit. Um, and I was, I was very lucky from a team perspective. And then there is this element of, you know, I am from Chicago. I'm from the Midwest. Like I really believe in the thesis of capital being deployed outside of the Valley. Um, looking back, that was very fortunate because now we have this rise of the rest and companies that are headquartered in, in the Valley or funds that are headquartered in the Valley are certainly looking and investing at, at companies, you know, headquartered in in the southeast or Midwest or, or wherever. Um, but you didn't you didn't have it back then. And I I like felt the mission, right? And and also looking back, I'm not sure you know I could have handled the. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I would have learned to handle the competitiveness. But like it was it was very beneficial for me as an associate to be going into cities and having 
a competitive advantage going into those cities where, you know, if you are one of five funds that are focused on a city, you can get access to everyone. If you are one of a thousand funds, you, you have to be much more specific about the way you are sourcing, indulgencing, and, and winning deals. I, I, I certainly want to emulate that in the way that I work, but it definitely worked to my advantage um, starting out to be able to really, really get access to some interesting people that maybe, you know, maybe would have brushed me off if we had all been in the Valley. It sounds like it was the the crowded nature of the venture capital ecosystem out there and the crowded nature of the freeways that really, really just set you <laughs> yeah. off. Right. I mean, but, but to be fair, I never, I never made the conscious decision. Like I was, I was bought into the, the role I, I got. And so it was, it was never a comparison between the two. It was like, you know, I want to do venture. Um, this aligns well with, with what I'm doing now and my, you know, my outlook and, and my mission. And so it, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, a, Hey, let's not do the Valley because I don't, I don't like the competitiveness or whatever. That's more in hindsight, you know, maybe, maybe it was beneficial for me to be where I was. Who who knows? Right. I mean, I could, I could be leading a very different, um, different life had I gone out there. And so you spent, you know, a few years at Hyde Park Venture Partners and actually, you know, you, you made it up the ranks. And one thing I'm always curious about, um, in conversations such as this, you know, in, in a lot of industries post MBA, you know, consulting, banking, there is a very structured path to that next level. In, in your experience, how does it work in the venture world post MBA? How, how does the promotion process work in venture capital? It is very ambiguous getting promoted in, in venture capital. And I would say less ambiguous the bigger the firm is. So we have, you know, we have some funds that are multi-billion AUM funds and have armies of analysts and associates and VPs and even partners, those seem to have much more structured process or processes in place, especially when you think about the earlier promotions, right? It is it is much easier to quantify this skill set for an analyst versus an associate versus a senior associate. You know, I'm just kind of throwing out different levels that might be there. Especially because they're they're relatively low stakes. Um, when you think about the way venture funds are set up, or at least this is how I I generally think about roles. There is the sort of early career or early stage people, and those are analysts, associates, senior associates. You know, kind of you name the title. Those are folks that are trying to get deals through, probably don't have check writing abilities, but certainly getting a lot of exposure and reps in. And and those folks, you know, sometimes come and go. I wouldn't say they're necessarily partner track. They might be, but that's one category. That that is like a very low key promotion, right? They're they're very meaningful, but if you don't make it to senior associate one year or another, it's you know not a not a um, big deal. Then there's sort of that like mid career, I'll call it like partner in training, and these might be uh, VP, director, principal, whatever. Typically, that signifies that the firm has trust in you. You may or may not have check writing abilities, but you're certainly leading you know, leading deals or have the expectation to, you know, hopefully that means you're kind of partner in training, the firm is investing in you, you're investing in it. And then there's partner categories. And there are different levels of partners. There are partners, managing directors, you know, you see all of these different managing partner, different titles. And, you know, those those are folks that are certainly leading deals, or at least externally, it, it signals that they are, are able to. And I would say that the 
closer you get to the top, the more ambiguous it is in, you know, when does this promotion come? Is this promotion coming? Is there enough room at the top, right? Because it's all set pools of capital. And so once you kind of have a routine going, if you have, let's say three partners and you're cool with three partners, you know, what does it take to promote a, a fourth? And that's, that's when it gets interesting or confusing or, or whatnot. Everything else is like, okay, can you do diligence? Can you lead a diligence process? You know, have you done this? So, so it's more, more checking the box and, and moving forward traditionally. And so I've had to, you know, sort of navigate that, but I have focused or at least tried to focus historically in my career are, you know, what are the skill sets that make me a better investor and make this fund or drive better outcomes for the fund? Focus on that stuff. All the other title stuff kind of just comes and goes and is, and is fluid, or at least that's, that's been my outlook that makes me much, much happier given the ambiguity. I think that makes total sense. I've often been told it's it's kind of all a black box, you know, the recruiting process for VC, the promotion process for VC, uh, investing in early stage companies. A lot of times the ambiguity is just something, something you have to get used to. But I, I'd love to talk about... Chicago Ventures. And, you know, you recently joined the team and they recently raised, I think, was it a $63 million fund three? So congratulations on all of that. I know the whole entire, it felt like Chicago Twitter uh, ecosystem was a buzz with Chicago Venture News. And I'd love if you could talk about, you know, what led you to join join the firm and, and, you know, talk a little bit about the thesis behind Chicago Ventures. Sure. And thank you for that. I'm, I'm very excited to be a part of the team. And obviously, new fund announcements are exciting, especially for the community, because it means more, you know, more capital coming, coming back to um, invest in startups. So starting with how I joined CV, there were two, two driving forces, if I had to boil it down. One was people, and it started with my peers, Peter and, and Lindsay, who have been sort of my best friends in venture and obviously developed personal relationships as well, basically since the beginning. I mean, I probably met Peter and Lindsay within my first month of, of starting in venture and just kept a consistent relationship from there. So really wanting to work with those folks. And then obviously the the rest of the team that I got to know over time was a, was a great opportunity for me. I mean, how often can you just have both things work out that you're, you're working with, you know, sort of your, um, your best friends. And then the other side of it was geographic. So I moved to Austin a little over a year ago, actually, right before the pandemic. And one of the things that Chicago Ventures has been super strategic about is getting a foothold down here in, in Austin. So from a, a standpoint of having a person present here, especially as the ecosystem has been growing and you know getting buzzier, has been hopefully a mutually beneficial thing for, for them and for me. I had certainly spent some time in the Southeast before that or before this. So sort of combining forces and, and being able to bridge those networks has been has been super beneficial. So so those were kind of the driving forces with with coming over. I mean, the firms are actually fairly similar when you look at the macro scope of things. You know, we invest outside of traditional coastal areas, you know, kind of early stage, although Chicago Ventures is is very much straight and narrow on the on the seed track. So we, you know, invest in sort of that that seed range or that's pre-seed, seed, post-seed, you know, it all, all kind of blends together. And and we are really focused on, you know, sort of finding the overlooked entrepreneurs in the overlooked areas. Um, and to me, you know, when when you kind of go back to that that mission or like what what really excites you about essentially deploying capital where you are is is a lot of that. So all of that put together, you know, very, very good fit for me, me personally. 
And then Chicago Ventures, you know, I touched on on what we do. I think that we are going to have an increasingly large impact on both the Chicago ecosystem, but, you know, call it the the greater middle of the country or non-coastal area. Um, And part of that is because we are leading rounds at the seed stage and leading them with, you know, high conviction checks. Um, And if you've been around sort of the Chicago ecosystem for a few years now, you'll see that we, we went through this sort of wave of growing conviction within the ecosystem. And by that, I mean, five years ago at the seed stage, everyone was just throwing checks everywhere, right? You'd have a tech stars company that would, you know, sort of be the darling and then everyone would put in 100 or 200K. Or you'd have the spin out from another popular startup and everyone would just kind of like throw in some capital. And what, what happened was like, no one really had true ownership or responsibility for that company. And at the same time, um, if they went to uh, go on and, and raise bigger rounds or, or be successful, like also you didn't have the optionality that that you wanted to really grow that position. And so I think the whole ecosystem went through this like mature, maturing process. Um, and in that process, some funds raise raise larger funds, right? And and start to focus a little bit more at the post-seed or series A, maybe even series B stage. Um, and then you had a few funds really focus in on seed, but but raise, you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollar funds. So you might be leading rounds, but quarter or half million dollar checks. And then you have Chicago Ventures like right there in the middle, which is true seed, you know, we want to write 500 to $2 million checks, really be that partner in the first institutional round. And I think that that is a really exciting opportunity, both both for us, but then also I think it is just so helpful because we we still don't have enough seed capital in in the geographies that we're investing in. And and it is it is, you know, the world is flattening. More Bay Area funds or New York funds are, are starting to get involved at, at the seed stages, but certainly not to the extent where finding a lead is easy for everyone. And so I, I am excited for that opportunity and also what that means, you know, for for the city, both both Chicago and, and the areas around. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there was a little bit more of a kind of spray and pray mentality a few years back. And it's really interesting to hear about that evolution. I, I wonder, once you guys have made an investment at Chicago Ventures, how do you like to sort of come in and assist those companies? Would you say, you know, you provide a lot of resources, a lot of networking opportunities? Do you ever have people that can sort of plug in and potentially help out with different initiatives? How does that relationship work at Chicago Ventures with your portfolio companies post-investment? So I'd say there are two two categories. One is going to be on a personal level and whoever within the fund that you are working with specifically. That is probably more obvious. It might be a board relationship, an observer relationship, some sort of formal like, hey, who's who's my coach or who's who's gonna listen to me when I when I need to blow off steam or or whatever. And I think that's that's fairly standard across the board when you think about funds that are are leading rounds or even just, you know, participating at the seed stage. One of the things that I think is so unique about Chicago Ventures is the platform created by our partner Lindsay. She has essentially gone and and built and systematized a set of resources that really plug into the companies we invest in and you know, the leaders within those, those companies to support them in, you know, what do I need right now and who can I get it from? So an example is she's created a bunch of different working groups that meet 
I think it's, you know, quarterly or monthly and it's, you know, it might be all of the people ops folks from, from our companies. And they're all, you know, right now struggling with like, Hey, how do we go back to office? Do we require vaccinations? You know, how is the physical setup? Do we, do we require coming back into the office? Do we make it happen? You know, there are all these questions. And so being able to get together as a group and share those learnings and understandings and, you know, when one person or one, one company has already come back to the office, they can share those learnings. And so she, she keeps just knocking down points of friction across the, across the portfolio. And that's, you know, either bringing in experts or just creating a community where, people with the same challenges can can share. And I think that has been a way to really add value across the portfolio in a more more scalable way, which I, I mean, I, I think I underappreciated what she did until I got a look at, you know, a look from the inside at, at the impact that she's created. You guys are clearly very focused on the seed stage. And that's an area where it's been an interesting 12 months and you know i think you've you have a great blog piece about this recently day by jay by the way huge fan going to post it in the show notes absolutely love it it's it's really really great work i think and it's so helpful i think just to get a broader sort of overview of the vc landscape and certain markets that you hone in on but i think you had a really good piece recently about the state of seed stage investing could you talk a little bit about you know so listeners have an idea how the environment of the seed stage, how that kind of differed versus the rest of the VC investing ecosystem, some of the challenges that it saw and where you think the seed stage is poised as we you know, enter 2021 and as we come out of COVID. Sure. So historically, we have said that seed investing is a local game. Um, this is pre-COVID, meaning it's a people business. You want to meet people. You want to be close enough to their office that you can just stop by. Or if you want to have a whiteboarding session, you can just get together and spend two hours in a, in a room going over things. And so that was the reigning hypothesis on why there was this imbalance of capital in non-coastal regions and also why seed capital raised by seed companies in the Valley was full of much greater rounds and much higher valuations because it was all localized markets. Now, what happened over COVID was everyone started doing Zoom investing and so we saw um, a lot of coastal or New York funds start to target seed investments in Chicago, Austin, Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta had a huge year, both from a seed but also growth perspective. It's, it's, it's crazy how, you know, not having to take a, a plane lowered the friction for, for writing checks in, in different areas. But anyway, the, the thought was like the market just got so hot in sort of Q3, Q4 of, of last year, um, which, which is insane because at this time of last year, everyone was focused on portfolio companies saying like, hey, do we need to cut headcount? How do we, you know, rein in expenses? Are we, you know, like, are we going to make it? Do we need to raise a bridge? You know, it was, it was like dire straits. And then all of a sudden you come out of that and it's, it almost felt like people were throwing capital into the streets and just someone pick it up. Um, and, and what's funny is like, that's kind of what happened at the, at the later stage. When you look at the trends, prices went up and rounds went up and not just by an order of, you know, 10%, 30%. I mean, it's like round sizes and valuations were like 50% greater than, than the year before for anything that was, you know, kind of series B or, or greater. Now at the seed stage, valuations stayed relatively flat and round sizes got bigger. And I think that's because 
one, there is still capital to be put to work. So, you know, a lot of VCs had dry powder, needed to deploy it. So they were, you know, it was easier to get access to that capital when you were raising around. Also, you wanted to be able to last longer because, you know, we didn't know when we'd be coming out of out of this and you want to make sure you get, you know, sort of your full uh, year or two before you have to go out and raise again. But then the other thing was there were fewer companies that were actually closing rounds last year. And so you think about, you know, number of companies down, round sizes up. There was probably still some uncertainty from a VC perspective. So, you know, round, rounds were not as competitive. And and by the nature of, you know, I think you, you mentioned spray and pray, but I think it's also like a lot of seed funds are just um, smaller or newer or potentially they were fundraising. And because, you know, LPs kind of stopped taking as many meetings you know, in, in the beginning of COVID, maybe they hadn't closed their funds, so they're writing smaller checks. You know, there's there's all this kind of like turmoil happening at the seed stage where you didn't have these like hyper competitive, like I'm just going to come in and, you know, lead a seed round and put down my term sheet and I'm going to take three million out of the three and a quarter that, that you're going to raise. And then by the way, there's like two other firms that are putting down those term sheets. Like that, that didn't really happen as much at the seed stage. And so where I think a lot of us thought it was going to be competitive and just craziness, we only saw that at like the very top end. And I don't mean the top, you know, quartile of fundraisers. It was probably like the top 5%. So that was kind of an interesting thing that happened over, over the last year that I think surprised a lot of us that were actually involved in it because rounds were happening faster. They were closing faster. And so it, it implied that there was um, a lot more heat in the market than there was. And I would imagine, you know, looking forward into 2021, from your writing, it seems like the prognosis is very strong for 2021, just with, you know, live events coming back and, you know, hopefully the economy kind of continuing to, you know, slowly eke out of this or, you know, creep out of this pandemic. But just curious your thoughts as to, you know, what you think we'll see in a year from now when we look back at 2021, what you think the story will be at the seed stage level? I, I think it will be strong at the seed stage level with the only concern being, are there enough companies being built or are there enough companies in inventory, right? I think it, it is early to know how the pandemic impacted the start of companies or, or how quickly they spun up teams. I've certainly been uh, speaking to a lot of companies that started during the pandemic. So I, I don't think that's a big concern, but if it turns out that, you know, companies took longer to get off the ground or there's more distributed companies. And so we're dealing with a different set of challenges. You know, there, there, there could be some reasons why it's not as, as strong as I, I think it is. Um, I think where the bigger issue is kind of in the next one to three years is going to be this series B, maybe series A crunch. So, you know, how I talked about earlier at every stage except for seed, prices went went way up. It was a very frothy market. We had kind of crazy multiples that you only saw as an exception in years before just become the norm. And it will be interesting to see if that can sustain. And, and part of it, by the way, was driven by public markets. Like public markets have been at an all-time high. So you kind of look at where public market multiples are and apply those to private markets. You're know, like, oh, this isn't so insane, but it also just that feel feels really insane. So the question is, like, does that heat 
stay for the next year, two years, five years. And if it's only the next year, then by the time all of these kind of series A or really hot seed companies go out to raise their, you know, late A, B, are they going to have a really high hurdle to get over to, to maintain that sort of valuation step up? Um, so I think that's, that's where like the interesting crunch is going to happen in the next couple of years. I think seed will be, will be strong and, and probably stronger as, you know, as we have kind of this reemergence of seeing each other. I mean, it's it's so much easier to build conviction when you are talking face to face than over a Zoom call. And and that goes both ways, right? On on the investor and with with the entrepreneur. And because seed is still so driven by conviction over data, because there just isn't isn't as much data obviously for a seed company as a A or, or B. Um, I think I think that'll start to you know drive some lift as as well. I have only in my time in VC, I've only gotten used to seed stage investing over Zoom. So I I truly do look forward to what it's like to kind of be in the room and and get to know somebody that way. But I I'm curious about you know so Chicago Ventures, obviously you guys are seed focused, but. In terms of industries, do you look sort of across the, the the spectrum? Do you look at just B2B companies? I know that like Chicago has such a huge population of B2B startups here. So does Austin have sort of the same makeup? Really curious as to how you guys think about industry focus and you know B2B versus B2C. We invest in both B2B and B2C. I would say the the split is probably more 30-70 or 40, 60, majority being B to B, but we certainly like B to C. And, and I would also say like the B to B to C, right? These marketplaces or or sort of distribution models where the end consumer is purchasing, but but distribution is is through business. From an industry perspective, we are fairly agnostic to industry. I would say of of late, you know, logistics has been been interesting, but that is also a very strong Chicago thing and certainly has been a industry that has grown in interest from a, a financing perspective of late. So I think if you're in, you know, in good logistics companies, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy on whether or not you um you do more investments in this space. I have been spending time on, you know, more network-based businesses. So I think there's a lot happening in the sort of talent network upskilling job matching from a, a more verticalized or specialized perspective. I think there's a lot happening in, you know, sort of these traditional Midwest uh, industries, like, you know, we talked about supply chain, manufacturing, things, things like that. But to answer your original question, I mean, we are a generalist firm. And I think that's, you know, it's exciting because you get to dabble in a lot of different things. Yeah, we're we're generalists as well. And I think for the intellectually curious, like I, I studied liberal arts in college, I was an econ major, but that's one thing I almost view generalist investing. It's like the liberal arts of venture capital. You do just get to you get to jump into things and just immerse yourself and learn as much as possible and tackle new problems. And I've absolutely loved it. But I've also noticed you've also been spending some time in the NFT space. I saw 
you recently minted a, uh, a painting of yours, and I have a few questions about about the whole process. What led you to want to mint the painting? Could you just explain the process to us a little bit for people who are unfamiliar? Yeah, I don't intend for this to be a deep dive on NFTs because that's that's way too long of a conversation here. But just curious, you're the first guest on Chicago Capital with any experience in the NFT space, I think. So, uh, you know, the floor is yours. Yeah, I am by no means an expert. It's like, it's like all things crypto where I get really interested and I try to learn enough, but then experts get like 10 times deeper than what I'll ever, ever be able to understand. Um, no, but I, I just thought it was really interesting and like a cool new thing. Obviously it's, it's a cool new thing and, and people's, uh, you know, $69 million or, you know, paint, you know, I guess mural, or I don't, I don't know what you would call it image. I don't either. Collection <laughs> of images. I'm sure there's, there's a technical um, term that they're labeling it, but like, obviously that drew a lot of interest and I'm like, okay, well, what, like, what is actually in, involved in this? Um, and it was really anticlimactic. Like I went onto a website, I uploaded my image I chose how many I want, you know, tokens I wanted to be able to um, to sell or trade. I, see, I don't even know the the technical terms really. And then I had to, you know, mine the token, which cost me, I don't know, the equivalent of like thirty five dollars of of Ethereum. And then it was live, and it's out there, <laughs> and nothing's happening with it. And it's you know, it's it's one of these things where um, you're like, oh, I got to figure this out, and I got to do it. And then you you do it and you have no idea what just happened. I mean, I just I just explained in like very layman's terms, you know how I understand the process to be. Um, and now something's just out in the internet and sitting there waiting for someone to uh, to bid on it. I, I wrote in my blog post, I was like, you know, it's basically the same thing as posting to Instagram, but it cost me more, and I never got the dopamine hit of like someone liking it or or buying it. So. You know, we'll we'll see if there's more in my future. I'm not 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 sold yet. We're gonna put it in the show notes. So I mean, if you start getting some bids and this starts generating some more, I mean, if you want to kick some back towards Chicago Capital and, and include us, we're we'd totally be all on board for that. No, I, I, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think is that is something that you have always tried to do, whether it be, you know, the rise of crypto, AI, any kind of emerging technology. I don't think it's something that everybody does where, you know, you read about it and you see it and, you know, it's it's all the talk of, um, you know, VC Twitter, early stage Twitter, but you jump into it and you do want to get some firsthand experience with it. Is that is that something that you've sort of always, that intellectual curiosity, something that you've always sort of had? Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty interesting because I think it comes from me being a very okay engineer. Like in, in college, right, I take all of these advanced and I, I'm not downplaying. Like I um I obviously got jobs in, in engineering. I'm sure I, I could have done it. And not not you know, not computer science or computer engineering or anything. I I did robotics. And so there was a lot of this like low-level programming and information that I would brute force and understand, but not know if I really understood it. Which is, which in reality is probably how a lot of people think, but you know, you think you're the only one who's just like, I don't know, not, not even faking it till you make it just like, you kind of get the concept and you get it enough to do it. And then, you know, you move on to the, onto the next thing. And that's sort of what I've done through all of these new technologies and, and cycles of, you know, whether it's industries or, or whatnot, and probably why I'm a generalist as, as an investor, because 
I like to go from very high level to very low level. And then as soon as I feel like I've figured out the part where, you know, it's a lot more effort to get, you know, a little more information, that's, that's when I kind of start doing another thing. And, you know, that's, that is probably good and bad for, for investing, you know, kind of bringing it full circle, you know, helpful, helpful for sorting through companies and and getting that initial diligence, you obviously have to do the push to get to that, you know, very detailed part before, before you make the investment. But yeah, to answer your question, I've always kind of been a a tinkerer and tinkered with a lot of different things. I think, you know, it'd be nice if I kind of stuck (laughs) stuck in a lane and like, you know, figured out the terminology with, with NFT. I mean, it's, it's nice to do that because you can understand, you know, if I am a, I, I think actually, um, you know, music is is probably a better application than some of these visual uh, visual mediums. But you know, you do it and you start to understand. Okay, this is this is the process, and this is how a layperson could get involved in these these technologies. And anyway, yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. I think it keeps things you know fun, and you know, it's it's cool. Like I'm, you know, in in the middle of my career or beginning of my career, but still, you know, learning things like I would be. A, you know, freshman in, in college or, or whatnot. So yeah, it's fun. I mean, you did mint a painting in particular. So I'm curious, I, I know from everything I've read, from everyone I've talked to, venture capital investing requires a lot of patience, a lot of sort of methodical ambiguity, a lot of spending time over years working on something. Painting for you, is that something you picked up as a kid? Is it something to this day you still do a lot of? And how have you found that helps you as a, as a VC investor? Yeah, I have always been into, into art. I tried to go to art school and then found out how extensive it was and, and did not. But that's, you know, that's really where it comes from is it's like, it's my, my release, or at least it, it helps me, you know, use a different part of my brain so that I'm not always, you know, always stressed out about, you know, trying to apply frameworks or source or, you know, whatever you name it. And, and I, I do think it is helpful, both from a mental health perspective, but also, you know, you get to notice things you know, art is all about seeing and perceiving. You take any art class and they tell you, you should spend so much more time looking at the subject than, you know, at the piece of paper in front of you. And and there's, I'm looking as if I have my bookshelf next to me. I don't, but there are a lot of books about, you know, visual interpretation and noticing things and being able to take nuance and, and interpret both what that means, but how, you know, you kind of recreate it. And I think that's that's a very helpful skill set to have. I think, you know, it, it even translates into, you know, how do you read people's body language? How, you know, how do you notice the way people speak to each other? Um, you know, all of it is building on the same, you know, noticing um, and understanding skill sets. And I think, you know, it might, it might feel like a big leap to make, but if you are used to observing the world, you can apply that to many different um, many different avenues. There's a level of creativity involved there, and it is called creative capital for a reason. But uh, I am curious, you know, with our remaining time, I'd love to touch on Chicago. You know, we briefly touched about talked about it a little bit, but you've spent you spent the first part of your career effectively immersed in the Chicago ecosystem, especially the startup community here. I, I'd love to hear your take on how the startup community has evolved, where it is now. 
your prognosis for its growth in the future? Yeah, the, the startup community in Chicago has certainly matured over the period of time that I've been involved. And and if you talk to anyone who's been around the ecosystem longer than me, I think they would they would say the same thing. I think one of the strengths of Chicago is that it is such a diverse economy and ecosystem. There is finance, logistics, healthcare, insurance. I mean, you name any category of the GDP. It's like there is a a presence there and probably a handful of Fortune 500s that are are serving that that sector. And I think because of that, it makes it a really interesting place to build a a company, right? There, There is no shortage of problems to be solved and people who are noticing those problems or people to just call and like reference, hey, is this a problem that that you have? And so I think Chicago will always be strong if it can tap into to that network. Now where I think there is the other side of the coin on on that element is it's hard for tech to really break out and you know have a place at at the table, right? Our our tech sector is still learning and growing and maturing. And so when you think about even the biggest tech companies in Chicago, they're still small compared to, I don't know, a United or a McDonald's or, you know, whatever. I could, I could run down the list. And so what, what we really need to do is like carve out area and be competitive culturally with all of these other large companies and, and industries. And I think if, you know, if we can do that, leverage the strength, but then, you know, really involve these corporates and industries in our startup ecosystem and, and you know, really help show the light of, you know, entrepreneurship, because I think, you know, part of that is is, is still growing, right? The the hunger for, for starting things. I think if we can do those two things, there's like no stopping this city just because of the natural um, benefits. And then, you know, you kind of talk on, on top of all of that, there's like low cost of living, but great culture in this city. You know, everyone complains about the public transportation, but like it's it's actually really good for, you know, a city in the U.S. Great, great infrastructure, you know, great, great places to eat. Like it's just a great place to live and grow. And you have this like perfect combination of, you know, hardworking and aggressive, but you're not over or really so it's um, anyway, I think I, I'm very bullish on on the city, assuming we can get out of our way and really, really take advantage of the inherent values. You mentioned great places to eat. Jackie, I'd love to hear some of your favorite Chicago eateries that you want to give a shout out to that you've uh, you've frequented over the years. Oh my gosh, it is it is now so long since I've eaten out in in Chicago. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, I can do I can do cocktails. Um, Berkshire Room is one of my favorite. I also <laughs> um, I, I I wouldn't say they're their food is the best, but like the Dawson, I think has a great, great area and they have, you know, great, great cocktails as well. And then anything on Randolph street, like I'll eat, I'll eat anywhere. There, there used to be this like hamburger place kind of like tucked in that went out of business, but that was my, um, can't remember what it's called anymore. That was like my favorite restaurant. And then, you know, I'm sure it, it turned over, um, but literally drop me off anywhere there. Oh, and Momotaro, I would say that's probably my that's like food wise. Love yeah. that spot. Yeah. Um, before we sign off, any great, you put out great content 
And I think it's it, it's really helpful for anyone who's looking to learn more about VC, get a better pulse of the market, what's going on. You you put out a great piece on fragmentation that we didn't get to touch upon, but I, I really love that piece. But any VC resources, thought leaders that you yourself like to follow, who do you think is sort of the best, uh, putting out the best content out there these days? That's that's a great question. So in in my transition, I started totally fresh from a content perspective, right? Because um, I went from being subscribed to all this stuff, changed email addresses, and you know have to pick and choose what I reintroduce. There are obviously a few news publications that everyone everyone reads. I have become really interested in the profile, which is not VC specifically, but it is a newsletter that goes deep into different um, different people and their their stories, their learnings, their frameworks. And that is something that I have been really interested in is just developing other frameworks and getting um, introduced to how how other people find value in in companies work, other people, um, you name it. And I think that one is very interesting. That's great. That's a I had, no one's recommended that one yet, so that's that's perfect. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. This was amazing. I cannot wait to have you on again. If people want to follow you and find you on Twitter or find your writings, where can they go? I'm on Twitter at J Demonte, J A Y Demonte, and then I blog at Day by J, which will be linked to from my my Twitter profile. So, thank you so much for having me on that. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.